Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 8, we're going to begin with verse 48, and we're going to read all the way through verse 59, the last verse of the chapter. This is God's Word. The Jews answered him, answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are weighty words and high and lofty concepts. Lord, in and of ourselves, with our own minds, we simply cannot understand. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us knowledge and wisdom and discerning that we might hear your voice speaking through your scriptures. Lord, as Samuel asked, we simply ask that you would speak. For we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Have you ever been asked a question that wasn't really a question? Do you know how fast you were driving? What is wrong with you? Why do you always leave your socks laying on the floor? Those aren't really questions. They're really more accusations. The person who's asking the question isn't really looking for an answer. The policeman who pulled you over already knows how fast you were driving. If he didn't, he wouldn't have pulled you over in the first place. Guys, you may not know what's wrong with you. But your wife does know what's wrong with you because she lives with you and she's asking because she wants you to also know what is wrong with you as for the one about leaving your socks on the floor that one is purely hypothetical no one has ever asked me that question why would they right kate i've never done anything like that 
Now, I bring this up because in our passage today, the religious leaders asked Jesus a series of questions that weren't actually questions. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Do you think they really wanted an answer to that question? Are you greater than our father Abraham? You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then the big one, verse 53, who do you think that you are? Even though the religious leaders had bad motives for asking those questions, it really is a good question. Who is Jesus? Is he a carpenter's son? Is he a rabbi, a miracle worker? Is he, is he the second coming of Elijah or one of the Old Testament prophets? Is he the Messiah? Is he the chosen one? Is this lowly carpenter the king of Israel? How would you answer that question? Is Jesus your God? Is Jesus your parents' God? Are you just kind of here going along for the ride? Is he your savior? Do you really need to be saved? Is he your teacher? Is he your therapist? Is he your genie? Is he your co-pilot? Are you his co-pilot? Who's flying the plane? You or Jesus? <laughs> Does Jesus tell you what to do? Or are you telling Jesus what to do? Are you his disciple? Is Jesus your king? These are important questions, and Jesus has important answers. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus famously said, I am the light of the world. Here, in this part of the chapter, he says something a bit more perplexing. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, take a deep breath, English majors, because later on in the sermon, we will explain what Jesus meant. For now, it's enough to know that the religious leaders knew exactly what he meant. Because the moment he said it, they picked up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy. Here's a hint. He didn't flub the grammar. He was very intentional with saying what he said. Now, whoever Jesus is, it's unmistakably clear that his identity is very closely tied to his glory. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. Now, just a little biblical interpretation 101 for you. Whenever the Bible wants to emphasize something, it repeats it over and over again. And here we have the word glory or glorified four times in just two verses. It's as if Jesus is underlining that word. He's hitting control B, so it's in bold. It's in italics. He wants us to know whatever else he is and whoever else he is, that he is glorious. He's bright. He's brilliant. He's heavy. 
He's the kind of person who takes our breath away. He's the kind of person who sweeps us off our feet. He's the kind of person who stops us in our tracks. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means heavy. Which is why the great C.S. Lewis, in his most famous sermon, titled it, The Weight of Glory. Everything about Jesus is glorious. His grace is glorious grace. His obedience is glorious obedience. His love is glorious love. His patience is glorious patience. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a glorious kingdom. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Before Abraham was, I am the glorious I am. Now, in order to explain a little bit more about what Jesus means by saying that, we're going to walk through the passage together. And if you'd like to take notes, here's our outline. As we walk through the passage, I want us to see four ways that Jesus shows us the glory of God. The first thing we'll see is the glory of his patience. Second, we'll see the glory of his person. Third, we'll see the glory of his promises. And then finally, very briefly, we'll see the glory of his plan. So the glory of his patience the glory of his person, the glory of his promises, and finally, the glory of his plan. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look at the glory of Jesus, the great I am. The very first thing that we see is the glory of his patience. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, how's that for an opening question? If you could ask Jesus one thing, what would you ask him? I guarantee you that among my top ten questions that I have for Jesus would not be, So, Jesus, is it true that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I definitely would not say that. And yet, that's what the religious leaders, the conservative, Bible-believing people, asked Jesus. So what are they asking? Now, just two quick things about the question. First, the question about Jesus being a Samaritan is basically an ethnic slur. Not exactly, but pretty close. I'll put it this way. Have you ever been to a country where the people there do not have high opinions about America or Americans? Have you? I've been to a couple of countries like that, and oftentimes people will ask me, so, are you an American? Now, on its surface, that could be a legitimate question. They actually know uh, where you're, want to know where you're from. But there's a not-so-subtle implication there that Americans are, are crude or loud or, or terrible people. And so that, that disdain is embedded in the question itself. In this case, the Jews hated Samaritans. They were totally against the Samaritans. They would literally walk around Samaria if, if they had to get through Samaria to get from point A to point B. 
And so this is a little bit like saying, what are you, some kind of Samaritan? What are you, some kind of heathen, some kind of unbeliever, some kind of unclean person? All the negative thoughts that they had about the Samaritans are, are packed tightly into that little question. Well, what about the part about uh, asking Jesus if he had a demon? It doesn't take a lot of historical background to realize that that is not a respectful question at all. It's an insult. Essentially, they're calling Jesus either a lunatic or a liar. Sometimes demon-possessed people in Jesus' day looked a lot like lunatics. They had wild hair and wild clothing and wild eyes. They would sleep in graveyards. They would throw people into the fire. They would say wild things. It essentially was like uh, encountering a crazy person if you encountered a demon-possessed person. Demon-possessed people, again, were also assumed to be liars. Satan, or the devil, is known as the father of lies. And so demon-possessed people were expected to lie. You couldn't trust the things that they were saying because they were uh, possessed by the father of lies. Now, if you recognize those two categories, lunatic and liar, it's because they, I borrowed them from a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote this. Jesus told people that their sins are forgiven. This makes sense only, only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded by every sin. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who says that he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So according to the religious leaders, Jesus was the worst of the worst. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. He's a Samaritan. He's demon-possessed. Now here's where it gets interesting. Three times the Jewish leaders hurl insults at Jesus Three times, Jesus responds with the truth, and then three times, he responds with that, with an extended, gracious invitation to believe. You see that three times. Three rounds of insults, three statements of truth that contradict what they've been saying, and then three gracious invitations to believe. My friends, this is a pattern for how we should respond when people hurl insults at us for the sake of Jesus. When people revile us, when people say wicked things, untrue things about us for the sake of Jesus, we respond with the truth 
and with grace. In our hyper-polarized world where it's a temptation to respond to every insult with an insult of our own and every criticism with a criticism of our own, Jesus is modeling for us a way to live as faithful disciples in a fallen world. Truth and grace. Truth without grace isn't truth, and grace without truth isn't grace. People need both. This is the patience of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Timothy 2.3, God our Savior desires all people, even his enemies, even our enemies, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you hear it? Grace and truth. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The patience of Jesus, who did not respond to these insults with insults of his own, who did not call down fire from heaven on his enemies, shows us that the God we worship is a God of second chances. In this story, the religious leaders had three chances. As long as we are alive, we can believe in Jesus and receive his grace. When we die, it's too late. If Jesus were to come back five minutes from now, or five days from now, or five years from now, or 500 years from now, and we find ourselves aligned with the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders who had no room in their hearts for forgiveness and goodness and grace, if we call him a lunatic or a liar, either explicitly with the words that we say or implicitly by the deeds and lifestyles in which we inhabit, if we refuse the gift of everlasting life that he has come to give, it will be too late. That's the bad news. The good news is today it is not too late. The good news is Today, no matter what you have done, you can come to Jesus in faith. You can ask him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to receive you as a son or a daughter into the family of faith, and he will do it, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Not because of what you have done in order to earn his salvation, but because of what Jesus has done for you to earn your salvation. Because of his perfect life and not your own, we can come boldly to the throne of God's grace. Come to Jesus in faith. And this glorious person, Jesus Christ, will fulfill his glorious promises in your life, which is where we're going next. The second thing Jesus shows us is the glory of his person. 
Now, Jesus says quite a bit about himself here in these verses, about his humility, about his obedience to his heavenly Father. Earlier, he asked the same, these same religious leaders a non-question question of his own. In verse 46, he asked them, which one of you convicts me of any sin? Now, how's that for a question? <laughs> if I were to ever ask you that question, just assume it's a rhetorical question. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. Which one of you cannot accuse me of committing any number of sins? Of course. And yet, when Jesus asked that question, no one had an answer. No one had an accusation because Jesus was without sin. Amazing. But for now, I simply want to focus on arguably the most amazing thing that Jesus said about himself. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, English majors, that doesn't sound right, does it? Is that, is that what we expect him to say? Now, my guess is if the old-school uh, Microsoft talking paperclip were to pop up and give us a suggestion about how we might phrase that, it would say, no, 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 not before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I was. But that's not what he said. Before Abraham was, I am. If he said before Abraham was, I was, the religious leaders likely would have laughed at him or mocked him like they did in verse 57. Oh, are you older than Abraham? Have you seen Abraham? You're less than 50 years old and you, you claim to know this man who lived and died a thousand years before this. When he said before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to stone him to death. That's a very different reaction. They went from mockery to murder in two verses. Why? What happened? What was Jesus saying about himself? Well, to understand the context of what he's saying about himself, you really have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. After telling Moses to take off his sandals, Take off your sandals, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. God told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. We pick up the story in Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Literally, Yahweh or Jehovah has sent me to you. In Hebrew, Yahweh means I am or maybe more literally, I exist. Go tell them that the God who was and who is and who is to come has sent me to you. It's a name that, that conveys God's power. 
power. He is the creator of all things. It's a name that conveys God's eternality. He has existed. He always did exist. He always will exist. It's a name that conveys God's providence. He is a God who holds all of creation and all of reality, every molecule, together by his sustaining grace. It's a name that conveys God's personality. This is God's personal name. Up until this point in the story of the book of Exodus, the people called God El or Elohim, which are two Hebrew words which refer generically to God. The other pagan nations would refer to their own gods as El or Elohim. But starting in Exodus 3, God revealed his personal covenantal name. That's important because he wanted his people to have a personal relationship with him. You cannot have a personal relationship with an impersonal God. God is saying, not only do I want to rescue you, not only do I want you to understand my might and my power, not only do I want you to worship me and obey my commandments, I want a personal relationship with you. Because a personal relationship with the personal God will completely and totally transform your life. An impersonal relationship with an impersonal God is essentially meaningless. That's probably why the Apostle Paul said, well, you believe that God is one? Oh, okay, good. I guess that's a good thing to believe. Even the demons believe in that. It makes no difference to your life. It makes no difference to your destiny to believe in a vague, impersonal God. What will really and truly change your life and your world is to know God as Yahweh, the great I Am. By invoking God's personal name, Yahweh, Jesus is saying to them and to us, I am your creator. And I am your sustainer. And I am your savior. I am eternal life. When, God, when I speak, God the Father is speaking through God the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see why they're so angry about this? They picked up stones to stone him to death because Jesus was claiming to be God. Not a God, not a prophet of God, not a messenger from God, not someone with a divine spark in his soul where he was God-like in his closeness to God. None of that. He says, I am the true God. One writer put it like this. I'm paraphrasing. He writes, he's taking the most transcendent, personal, glorious concept of God that the world has ever known, and he's saying, that's me. Before Abraham was, I am. That is the glory of his person. That is the glory of Jesus. Now, the third thing Jesus shows us is the glory of his promises. In this passage, Jesus makes two glorious promises. The first promise 
is the promise of everlasting life. Verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what does that mean? He'll never see death? Everyone dies. This weekend, on Saturday, we were having a memorial service for a sister in Christ who died. How is it that Jesus can say that we will never see death? Here's what he means. Jesus is saying that he removes the finality of death, the sting of death, the condemnation of death. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of one of our sister churches, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, for 33 years. His first wife, Ruth, died of cancer in 1944, leaving Pastor Barnhouse to care for his two young daughters alone. He struggled for words to explain to them what had happened to their mother and how God could be good in this and how God could show his love in such a tragic situation. But one day when Pastor Barnhouse was driving with his daughters, a truck pulled up next to them, a big semi-truck, and they were engulfed by the shadow of the truck. And he asked his girls, would it be better to be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? They said, oh, daddy, that's a silly question. The shadow can't hurt you. For us as Christians, death is the shadow. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in him, you will pass through the valley of the shadow of death, just as Jesus did. He himself passed through the shadow of death, but like Jesus, you will rise again. We tend to think of everlasting life as as a future reality, and it is, But it's also a present-day reality for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the great I Am. The moment that we turn to Him in faith, asking Him to forgive us our sins, to give us the gift of everlasting life, that new life begins. John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the first promise. Everlasting life. If we believe in Jesus, our earthly bodies will die, but we will never die. We will live forever together with him in paradise. The second promise is the promise of everlasting joy. Verse 56 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
The gospel is good news. For Christians, the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. He says, it is my day. And because the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus, it is going to be the best day ever. For Christians, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be amazing. Why? Because we don't have to fear the wrath of God anymore. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross so that we could drink the cup of God's mercy. He drank the cup of the old covenant so that we could drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. On the cross, he drank the sorrow so we could drink the joy. The Christian life is hard sometimes. Being a disciple can be hard. It's it's right there in the word. The word disciple is intimately related to the word discipline. And as scripture says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It simply doesn't. On this side of heaven, we experience heartache and pain, sorrow and loss. Jesus did, so will we. In this life, we take up our crosses to follow him. And yet, because the gospel is true, because Jesus said it is finished, someday we will exchange our cross for a crown. A crown of glory and honor. Someday, because Jesus was a man of sorrow, we will be men and women of laughter and joy and celebration. Abraham saw Jesus' day, the day of the Lord, and he rejoiced. So will we, and so can we, beginning now, because the gospel is good news. The fourth thing Jesus shows us is the glory of his plan. Now, I'll be brief here, but just notice how this story ends. It's sort of a strange ending. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why didn't they stone Jesus to death? It would seem like a logical outcome. They vastly outnumbered Jesus and his disciples. They had the stones. They had the crowds. They had the mob. They had the momentum. And yet Jesus somehow slips away from them. Why didn't they stone him to death? The answer is because that wasn't God's plan. Jesus was going to die, but he was going to die on the cross. He was going to die, but he wasn't going to die during this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. He was going to die during the Feast of the Passover to show the world that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God was orchestrating this entire thing because God had a plan for Jesus. And you should know, if you are united to Jesus by faith, that God also has a plan for you. Sometimes that plan involves suffering. It did for Jesus. He suffered. But ultimately, the result is glory. 
If Jesus had been stoned to death at the end of John 8, that would have been a tragic loss. But because Jesus was crucified, his death became glorious. Because on the cross, Jesus triumphed over sin and death and all the powers of hell and darkness. That was the victory. On the cross, God demonstrated his love for us, showing us the beauty of his sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus finished the work that he came to do, the work of turning slaves into sons and daughters and enemies into friends. That really is the question. Jesus, who do you think you are? His answer is, I am the great and glorious I am. Who are you? Are you one of his disciples too? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. That you, Lord God, who lives in unapproachable glory, became one of us. We thank you, Lord God, that you, the author of all creation and all of history, wrote yourself into the story so that we might know you, so that we might be redeemed through your death on the cross. I pray, Lord God, that you would become more glorious to us that we would at this very moment and throughout this week feel the weight of your glory, not as the weight of oppression, but as the weight of liberation. Oh, Lord God, forgive our sins and set us free. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.